Welcome to episode number 142 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we have on a very special guest, Tim Hennix, Director of Engineering Services at DustCon Solutions based out of West Palm Beach, Florida. In the episode, we're talking about what details should be included in a dust hazard analysis. Tim, welcome back to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Thank you, Chris. Uh, it's good to be back. I appreciate you having me. I'm really excited about this discussion. We we had Tim on the podcast the first time way back in episode 28, so 110 or 120 episodes ago, talking about NFPA 69, Standard on Explosion Prevention Systems. And we recently replayed a um, Ask Me Anything he did in the Dust Safety Academy on NFPA 652 Chapter 8 of Management Systems, and that was in episode 117 and 118 of the podcast. This episode is kind of an interesting one. It's going to be more of just a fluid, open discussion based on some emails Tim and I were sending back and forth on this topic of what kind of details should be included in a dust hazard analysis. I'm going to get Tim to tell us you know, where the idea for this topic came from. We're going to talk about what items frequently just don't seem to have enough details. Uh, we'll talk through some of those items. We talk through programs and procedures. What role should the consultant play? And, and what details that Tim thinks maybe shouldn't be in a, a dust hazard analysis. So sort of big disclaimer, red bar type thing here. These are, you know, my interpretations of, of what should be included and what causes challenges when it's not included. It's also Tim's interpretations. If you read NFPA 652, you're probably not going to find a lot of things that we're talking about explicitly detailed out. And Tim mentioned right before the interview, it's like, we'd really like to elicit some feedback. So if you're listening to this and you're saying, no, this type of detail should be included, you can go to the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 142. Tim's contact information will be there. You can you can email me. You can join the Dust Safety Academy and put something in the forums there. There's lots of ways to start the conversation on this topic of what should be included in DHA, what shouldn't be included. So I just want to kind of put that out there that this sort of free-flowing discussion is pretty open. Tim, before we get into this topic of DHAs and, and details that are included or not included, can you just tell the, the audience what your role is in industries handling combustible dust with uh, DustCon Solutions? Yeah, absolutely. So my role here at DustCon Solutions is Director of Engineering. I kind of run uh, our day-to-day operations and, and interface with our clients to set up DHAs. I perform some DHAs. I do peer reviews for DHAs. Uh, we also do other services such as hazardous area classification, dust testing general consulting, litigation support. Um, you know, when it comes to combustible dust safety, we kind of have a bunch of ways that we can help our clients. But the, the vast majority, you know, the heavy lifting for us is, is dust hazard analysis. So again, the sort of idea for this interview or this discussion, to put it less formally, is, is you know, what details frequently aren't included in DHA that should, what details maybe don't need to be included and just get kind of in your words, where did the, the idea for this topic come from or what kind of discussions did it come up from your end? It's been something that's been uh, percolating for quite a long time. Uh, I came to work for DustCon Solutions, uh, I don't know, maybe three years ago or so after working for an explosion protection company in the industry, you know, selling explosion protection equipment. And in making that transition, I was very familiar with what the back end of the DHA process looks like where explosion protection may need to be installed or purchased or designed. But you know, it, it kind of shifted the way I thought about 
the combustible dust process because you know now I'm here on the front end of doing the dust hazard analysis and you know part of that is understanding what it is that we need to include, what our reports need to look like, what is the methodology we're going to use, and to be honest with you, I had a really good basis uh, with my mentor uh, Bill Stevenson who was you know, already doing DHAs with DustCon, kind of a one-man show type deal at the time. And, uh, you know, so what we did was we continued to improve our offering and make sure that we were meeting our customers' needs and expectations. But specifically to this, I had a conversation recently with an insurance broker, uh, and we were kind of just uh, talking about dust hazard analysis. He had some clients that need DHAs to be performed and um, you know, Descon was one of the companies who uh, he was vetting, just making sure that we were uh, able to do the work, that we were qualified to do it, and that we would meet their needs. And uh, we were having a conversation in which it was clear that across the industry, or, or you know, consultants who are providing DHA services, uh, there's quite a large gap between those doing kind of the most in-depth, most detailed DHAs. And those doing, you know, very much less detail in their DHAs. And a couple of the things that he had mentioned at the time that caught my attention were that he were he was a little disappointed that the DHA that he went through didn't include a full hazardous area classification, or some people may know it as an electrical classification study. And that rather than including in the DHA, it was a recommendation output of the DHA. Uh, another one that he had mentioned specifically had to do with the uh, explosion protection design that the DHA provider had identified that explosion venting was included on certain vessels, but pushed the responsibility for verification and obtaining calculations related to that onto the client from uh, a recommendation standpoint, rather than doing those calculations as part of the DHA itself. So in having those discussions, I realized that you know, there's sometimes a disconnect between the, the scope or the responsibilities uh, that are seen by the uh, DHA provider or the, the person who's leading the DHA and, and the person who is receiving it, or even more so the AHJs who may be uh, you know, looking at that DHA after it's been provided. So it really sparked this, um, this question in my mind of, you know, there's not necessarily a clear guidance. You know, I, I think about the accounting industry in which, you know, if you're going to be doing an audit of a company from an accounting standpoint, for like a, a, you know, you've got your, your consulting firm that comes in for a public company, they have very specific layouts and formats and questions they need to ask. And it's standard, standardized across the industry. But as I look across our industry landscape right now, you look at 20 DHAs, you might have 18 different formats that are not at all similar. So it kind of got me thinking about that. Yes, <laughs> that's, the, that's the short summary. Um, there's a lot to sort of unpack about that. And I think you hit a couple of key points on the, right on the head that I just want to reiterate. One, you know, the large range of, of what you might see in a DHA. If you just sampled 20 DHAs that were done last year, you would see a, a tremendous range in the depth and the analysis and the what's what's output from DHA, which is actually done in par, as part of that analysis. You see this huge range, and there's not really 
specific guidance out there that you can point to to say this is the right way. So that's what I meant in the opening when I try to soften things by saying, you know, disclaimer, this is just a, an open discussion on the topic. There's not necessarily something out there that says this is the the the. There's something out there. The NFPA 652 will say these are the minimum requirements, but even within that, there's lots of room for for a large variance. That's sort of one. And you you mentioned something really interesting that. And we're, we're going to dive into some of these areas, hazardous area classification, explosion protection design, whether or not those are outputs from the DHA, you know, recommendation must do, should, shall do a hazard area classification, or if there should be part of the dust hazard analysis process to begin with. And you talked really about scoping, making sure that the AHJ, the user, and the provider of the DHA are all really on the same page of what is going to be done in that DHA and what's going to be done after. So those are just the three points I want to just iterate, you know, the wide variance that's out there, the difference between an output recommendation with DHA and actually being done in part of the analysis. Uh, and then this, this need to scope up front. I'd like to just get like high levels. So you mentioned hack, uh, hazardous area classification, which I seem to be tripping over this morning, explosion protection design. Like what are some of the other high level areas that, you know, have a, have a large variance of what details you might find in a DHA. And then maybe we'll dive into some of those more specifically and, and dig into them a bit. So just kind of off the top, I think about the, the things that we cover. You know, first, looking at material properties, um, I, I do sometimes wonder how many DHAs out there are, are reviewing material properties with the amount of depth that it needs and, and which are maybe even uh, looking at material properties with too much depth. You know, there's a couple of different ways that we can go about obtaining the necessary explosibility parameters or combustibility parameters for a material. You can obviously grab a sample and test the dust and create a sampling plan and, and really get out there and you know learn a lot about the material. And then there's some instances where it's probably appropriate to use published data or uh, high-level assumptions that are conservative enough that you're good to go. Uh, there's some materials out there that we have a ton of published data on, and you know we know that this particular material's got kind of a ceiling on its KST value, or you know a, a, a floor on its MIE value, and, and you know are those tests really doing us a ton of good? Another one that I think of quite a bit is management systems. You know, management systems is a huge part of combustible dust, and I know that you and I have had discussions on you know, on the Ask Me Anything and on this podcast before about the importance of management systems when it comes to combustible dust. And yet there's certain uh, dust hazard analysis that omit it completely or, or at least don't give it the amount of uh, information that it deserves. And then if you dig in even deeper than that, you know, what is the right amount of scrutiny that we should be applying to the management system? Is it, you know, I'll pose the question to you, Chris, and you maybe uh, answer this. You know, if I told you as a client that I've got a, a hot work permitting uh, program uh, and the requirement in NFPA is that we have a hot, per, hot work permitting program, you know, how much deeper are you going to go there? You know, what would you ask me to quote unquote verify that we've got a hot work program and it's working? It's a great question. And I mean, what I'd like to see is actually checking to make sure there's, you know, actually look at it, see if there's the written document or these days, maybe it's an electronic document, get an idea if it's a, a single sheet or, you know, a, 
30 or 40 page document or a 200 page document to kind of get an idea of scope. And then that is the real question is, is it the responsibility of the consultant to make sure that's an effective program at the end of the day? I don't know if I have a a full answer to that other than to say, ideally, I, I would like to have consultants that are involved that do have the experience to be able to say that and would put that in, but that needs to be handled at the scoping side of the the project overall. But the minimum is, I, I think we need to be at least checking that they exist. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, when I'm, when I'm on site with a client, we're talking about how it work, you know, it, it's not usually enough for us to just say, you know, does a hot work program exist? It, usually goes one step further to say, okay, can you show me uh, the most recent permit? Who is it on your team that's able to to issue permits or approve permits and what kind of training is done? But those questions can only go so deep. I was involved with a client not too long ago that had a quite robust housekeeping program on paper, and they ended up with an OSHA citation specifically because they had high levels of combustible dust accumulated in a baler room. And that that situation was just one in which, although they had the program in place, it wasn't effective and it wasn't being kind of continuously monitored by by management of the facility and the the facility staff either wasn't given the resources and time to to do the housekeeping they needed to, or it... uh, it just wasn't being enforced by by supervision. So, and in situations like that, you know, as a consultant who may be at, at the site for anywhere from one to you know four days, it, you can only gather so much during that time. And you know, it, it kind of makes me wonder how much, you know, how how is it that we can effectively understand whether or not these management systems are are in place and effective in in a way that uh, works well for our clients you know i how much how much time should we be taking reviewing the detail of somebody's housekeeping program versus a high level overview of it and um, you know my experience has shown that it it really just is something that to this point at least has had to be uh, communicated and understood between the consultant and the client yeah, like a, a couple of things come to mind. One, you mentioned when you when you talked about actually checking the program, at least that it exists, and then like some spot checks. You know, if if you ask a if you ask somebody that should know how to access it, can they access it? Those sort of things I would picture. You know, ISO audits when I uh, when I worked for an engineering company, come in and, and audit your documentation to make sure your documentation meets whatever um, ISO standard you're sitting, and they're. <laughs> nobody liked being the person that the auditor had to come talk to, but it, you know, they come talk to you and they say, okay, well, can you find this document? Can you find your policy on this? Do you know how to actually use this system? Like some spot checks on, they wouldn't go through every document that the company had, but is there enough awareness and understanding to be able to use and access those documents? And then we're even talking a, a level deeper here, the documents, the right documents and done correctly. But I'd say at a minimum, yeah, I, I think we need to be checking that they exist and not just sort of, you know, a phantom policy that that's not followed, nor written down, nor understood, because that's that can be dangerous, right? Just like you said on one the case where there was a policy, but one of the specific rooms it wasn't being applied. That's probably pretty common, right? And and then you sort of have a a blind spot in that room. I think of a, a BC for Safety Council 
near miss they provided a few months ago on a hog fuel room uh, or hogger at a, a, a wood processing plant they had a large pretty large deflagration in the room caught on camera four workers in there because they were trying to unjam the hogger and this was at a facility i believe that had a pretty good housekeeping program but just this one room was just you know covered in in wood dust um, and that's where they have the deflagration so that's why it's important to not have these blind spots and have the consultant come in and play that role of, of doing those spot checks and figuring out where they are. Well, and, and I guess this gets back a little bit to the uh, the initial comment that we had was that there's this, this high degree of variance of what it is that is being produced. Because you know, in some DHAs I've seen, they talk about management systems basically as saying, this is a requirement. These are the requirements for your, your housekeeping program, for your te- inspection, testing, and maintenance for PPE. But then there's no like discussion in the report of verification of that. And then others, you know, I've seen spend the majority of their time, you know, going very much in depth into that information, maybe even at the detriment of the, the report itself, just because it becomes so dense, so long, and almost unreadable. So there, there's definitely a, a balance that needs to be struck there. You know, too much detail can be a problem, I think. The report itself has to be usable. At the end of the day, this is something that's going to be kept with, understood by, and used to implement improvements to the combustible dust safety program at a particular facility. And, you know, but at the same time, if we strip too much of that detail away, all of a sudden, it becomes you know less useful. Uh, also, so you know, I, that's one, that that's really what's been driving this question for me of what is the what is the right balance both in the responsibilities and in the way that we present them following the DHA as we you know deliver the report. Yeah, and I, I want to go into some of these details in these areas, but I also like this discussion of this high level. So I'm gonna have two questions that come to mind and. They're not meant to be pointed or put you on the spot, but I know you can handle it too, so I, I don't mind asking. One is just something I wrote down when you when you said it, and this is not a criticism of DustCon Solutions. I know you guys are great providers of DHAs and the rest of the work you do, and you're part of Dust Safety Professionals, our, our um, company membership. But it's, I just want to get your opinion and thought on this. Do you think that everyone that provides a DHA provides details on on the quote, this is what we do? <laughs> because you guys are experts in explosion protection design, that's where your background comes. It kind of makes sense that you provide the details on that where coming to folks on housekeeping or vacuum systems before they did DHAs or whatever, it seems like they they provide the details on the thing that they know and then don't really include what they don't know. And again, that's not a criticism of DustCon in any way. But do you think that comes in these DHAs at all? I do. I, I do. I, you know, I know even within our own organization, we've got different consultants with different backgrounds, with different comfort levels on certain topics. And, you know, as much as I would love to brag that all of our consultants are perfect and we know everything about everything, it, it's just not realistic for one person or one organization to have all the knowledge that's out there related combustible dust. You know, from my perspective, I I like to look at it as, you know, okay, hey, number one, do you understand the process that you're looking at and how everything connects together and the, the hazards that you might be finding? And then from there, you apply the knowledge and the expertise that you have about, you know, the standards. In many cases here in 
North America, it's it's NFPA, but it, it could also be related to you know the European standards like HSE or BVI or ATEX. And then you know one step further than that, do you have places that you can go to ask questions to somebody who might have the answer to something that you don't know? Uh, and, and to me in my career, that's been so important to have people that I've met through previous job roles, through uh, interactions at, at trade shows. If you remember, that's how you and I met, Chris. Even just 2018 at the powder yeah, show. I think. Yeah, yeah. And you know, being able to reach out to people out, out there who do have the expertise in something that you're missing, I've found even with some of our, you know, some of our direct competitors here in the consulting space. There really is a sense with many of us that safety is bigger than competition. And so we're willing to talk a little bit about our experience with a particular issue if it means that we're going to be able to help protect a, a facility or a person. You know, safety is not something that should be you know, kept behind closed doors and, and held on to as this, this valuable commodity that we don't want to share. I believe that it's something that we should be sharing out in the open so that everybody can learn from it. And I know for a fact that you agree with me on that. I got a whole podcast dedicated to it. We're on episode 142. So yes. So yes, I, I get back to your question. Um, it, it's inherent that if you are in an industrial hygiene background, you will approach things uh, from that perspective and you will utilize those uh those methodologies and procedures for sampling, you know, uh, capturing samples and, and labeling them and, and, and bringing uh, more focus into the material properties themselves and maybe being a little bit less strong on the engineered controls. If you're somebody who comes from a, a, a PHA background, you might be much stronger on the risk-based side of the dust hazard analysis methodology as opposed to somebody who comes from, you know, from the NFPA technical committees, uh, who's going to be approaching it in more of a prescriptive way. So I, I think that, you know, part of that is there's not a set methodology. There's not a set report format. There's not even necessarily a, a clearly defined limitation of, of the responsibility. And so all of that right now is in a position where you need to have the connection between the client and the consultant so that you can agree to what is going to be provided. You know, for example, will there be risk ranking and prioritization of the recommendations as part of the dust hazard analysis? Or is merely a summary or a list of those recommendations going to suffice? And to be honest with you, the difference in, in how much time and effort it takes a consultant to, to generate that with the client. I mean, that, that there's a pretty big difference there between just giving the recommendations and pulling it and pulling together a full, you know, risk ranking table so that you can prioritize them accordingly. And, and you know, that's just kind of one example of where uh, you really need to establish that up front and make sure that everybody's on the same page. So you mentioned a couple of really key things. One on you know, knowing what's your area of, of competency, if I can use that. And and we've had many podcast episodes on qualified persons and competency with DHAs and there's challenges there, but I'll use it in a more general term than just, you know, what's outlined in NFPA 652 or other standards. You know, work in your area of competency, know who to go to to get outside of that 
that really lends itself to this kind of team-based approach for a DHA, which is really important. But I, I would second that there should be a list of exclusions <laughs> in your DHA, in my opinion. It, if, if there's not, then you didn't exclude anything. And maybe that's great, but it's, you know, it would be unlikely that anything was excluded. So if you're excluding machinery, if you're excluding rooms like that baler room that you discussed or the hog hog room that I discussed, like those are things that should be ex- specifically said in the DHA. And similarly, I just I picture if we had this list of things that, you know, um, shall be included and should be included. Uh, and we talked about a lot of the ones that should, but don't have a shall definition right now. You know, it'd be nice to, to exclude those. Let's have under exclusion list. Didn't include explosion protection design documents out of scope for this this hazard analysis. Um, and then a recommendation would be complete a, a you know explosion protection design analysis uh, because it wasn't provided or something like that. Like just some lists of the folks at the end of the day when they read the report know what was analyzed and what wasn't. And then that ties into the front end again. And it's going to tie into price. It's going to tie into the time and duration. Those all things need to be discussed uh, beforehand. The, the second question, and this, this one is, is less pointed at uh, Duscon, but more pointed at you know, ourselves as the community for developing and understanding for compostable dust. But who is responsible for saying what's in a DHA? Like, do you picture that being something that should be down the road NFPA's responsibility or down the road OSHA's responsibility? Or, you know, we, I mean, we could do it in dust safety professionals, say we only allow consulting companies in here that will meet these minimum requirements. I don't know if that I don't know if that's a solution or not. I still need time to think about it. Um, and and certainly, I take lots of input from the community before we would go towards that route. But it, it's hard on one hand because it, it requires some artistic capability, like you're saying, at some points to decide how much is too much and how little is too little. But if we don't have those guardrails up, it's like, yeah, it's like a bowling alley. So you have the you have the lane and then you have the gutters. If you don't have those little guardrails up saying these are the minimum maximum requirements, then you're going to be going in the gutter sometimes with that ball. So I don't want to put you on the spot and you don't have to answer it in a very specific way, but more generally, you know, who who should be specifying what details should be in there and what details shouldn't be in there? How should that look? You know, if you picture the ideal case 10 or 20 years from now, where where would we be headed in that direction? You know, that's that's an excellent question. And I you rarely hear consultants and experts say this, but I, I just don't know what the right answer to that should be. And I believe that the... I truly believe that as this as this concept of dust hazard analysis continues to mature, you know, we're only five six years in to DHA proper coming out of the NFPA six five two standard. Twenty years from now, it will we will have developed such a, a rigor uh, over time because of things that have worked, because of things that have not worked, because of maybe incidents that have occurred on DH, you know, on, on facilities that have had a DHA, but it was omitted, or, you know, just maybe the market decides that we're not going to bear, um, you know, the price point to go into a certain amount of detail. I think that it's going to work itself out over time. I, I don't know who should be that person or organization to say, this is what we're going to allow, this is what we're not going to allow. I think that it's possible that if you've got certain high profile or, you know, integrated organizations, you know, maybe large insurance firms that uh, decide this is what we'll accept, this is what we'll not accept. Somebody like OSHA who might say, this is what we'll accept, this is what we'll not accept. You know, those could be things that drive this, but I don't necessarily know that there's something clear on the horizon. 
And I don't anticipate that the NFPA technical committees are going to go ahead and make that make that call for us. Um, I, I think that what they have have done over the the course of the last you know 15 years since the CSB put out the report in the mid 2000s, you know, they've done a, a really excellent, impressive job of of improving those standards, making them something that they can get more agreement. Uh, so that when we read through, we, we have a better understanding of, of what the requirements are. But I also think that you know they're very careful not to handcuff the community with too many uh, specific requirements. So you know I, I don't know that they're ever going to look at us and say, here is a DHA report format that everyone should use. And I don't think that it's necessarily even their place to do that. So you know. I, like I said, I, I don't know what the right answer to that is, but I do think that with time, the service will uh, sort itself out to some degree. Uh, and everyone, as they get more familiar with the DHA process, will start to have accepted methodologies, very much like you know how we see in the chemical industry or, or PSM regulated sites where you know, those are a little bit more prescribed when it comes to uh, regulatory bodies. But you know, I, I just think that over time, it will kind of sort itself out. Yeah, I couldn't agree. And I'm, I'm more, and I'm thinking about this bowling lane analogy. It's like we put something in place and now we, we sort of have bumpers up, but there, I mean, there are a minimum set of requirements. There are shell statements in FPA 652. And then there are minimum requirements that you need through OSHA. And, and you could also add in, um, but just generally accepted engineering press practices, it's just the lanes are still pretty wide. <laughs> so over time, I can see those narrowing down over time. Maybe as a community, we can move forward further. I would second that NFPA has done a great job getting to the point where we are today. And it's very hard. Think of control systems, engineering control systems. If you get to a point where you overshoot, then that's where you can kind of you know end up with some strange things happening. <laughs> so if they say too much and make it too prescribed, then they may have to back off at some point. You have these sort of oscillations and how the standards are applied in that. That's probably not as good, is as bad as moving slow and moving towards the direction in a slow, controlled manner, which is what you'd like to see if you're in an elevator <laughs> rather than overshooting your destination and coming back up and down and up and down. You, you kind of want to have a slow, controlled descent <laughs> if, uh, if you're understanding what I'm saying. So, yeah, it's, it's, they're, they're doing excellent work there. And then this is the question of, well, this is where we're at today. This is an excellent topic. And the reason I think it's so important on the podcast is I want the plastics facility manager. I want the lumber mill safety guy or girl that's listening to this podcast, because I know we have them, to be thinking, okay, when we have our next site-wide dust hazard analysis, these are the things I need to be asking the consultant about. Um, not necessarily give the answers to this podcast, but I think this has been a tremendous value to say, okay, these are some of the questions I need to start asking. Tim, I think we're, I th what I'm going to do, because I have a list of Hazard areas, classification, exposure protection design, management systems, risk ranking, hot work, housekeeping, and and material properties as specific cases of things that we could talk through in details, but we're not going to get into that today. Maybe we'll have, have you come back on the podcast for a future one, and we'll go through some of those er, those areas and say, okay, well, what, what kind of details have been lacking? What do you think on that? Because um, I think this is really a nice standalone piece on the higher level considerations for what sort of details would go in. Just to sort of close out, anything else you think, and I, I want to sort of address this to the user of a dust hazard analysis or the company side, 
you know, what kind of one or two things do you think they need to take away when they're trying to find a consulting company to work with to do a DHA? We mentioned some of them already, but anything else that we haven't said? I realized I set you up for like another 20 minute speech. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, I think this pot, you know, anybody listening to this particular episode of podcast has probably listened to your podcast before. And um, I know that you've, you've spoken with a number of, of my esteemed colleagues on, on things like what makes somebody qualified to do a DHA and, you know, what are the requirements for specific, uh, you know, specific solutions, whether that be dust collection or fire protection systems or explosion protection. But I, I think that, you know, having, having a good understanding of what a DHA is and what value you're trying to get out of your DHA is, is incredibly important. I, I can't tell you how often I end up uh, on the phone with somebody who calls me and says, um, I need a DHA. My, you know, my insurance company has told me I need it. You know, what's the price? And you can imagine, Chris, what would be the uh, the response to what's the price for a DHA at my facility? And at this point, I don't even know the name of the company. It's an incredibly important exercise to go through on the front end to understand. All right, what are you doing at your facility? How much experience does your facility have with fire, explosion, combustible dust safety? What are the reasons that you're, you're being pushed to do a DHA in the first place? And what is it that you'd like to get out on the backside? Because you know, not every facility is the same. Goals of every facility when it comes to DHA is not the same. Some are looking for bare minimum compliance and they want the lowest possible cost. Others want you to tell them what is the industry best practice? How can we have zero fires in this dryer from today moving forward? And the difference in what that analysis and that output looks like are dramatically different. They, they come in it, they come in with a, a very different amount of time and effort that it takes to do that. It is a, a very different buy-in that you need from the client. Are we going to have a team of 15 people that are uh, fully engaged and on board from your end user facility? Or, are you, or do you have one EHS manager who's been told to do this as his end of year goal to, to get into compliance? Um, you know, all of those things will go into how valuable or how much value we add through the DHA process. And something we haven't even gotten to yet and I think that is incredibly important is how much are you going to utilize your consultant who, who just spent an enormous amount of time, effort, and energy to understand your process, define the hazards, and make recommendations? How much are you going to involve them on the back end to understand what the how you should mitigate those hazards specifically from those recommendations? Because as somebody who, who goes about writing these things, you know, we want to make them relatively open-ended and broad for you so that you've got flexibility to use the best solution that's out there. You know, if I tell you specifically to vent using this size and this manufacturer's explosion protection equipment, you know, that limits you. You don't have the opportunity to go out and get quotes from the from three or four different vendors to see how they might approach it differently, unique solutions that, that maybe the, the consultant themselves is not aware of. Um, but at the same time, you know, it also is the case that every so often you deliver the report and, you know, even with follow-ups, phone calls, emails, you're maybe not, uh, you know, 
involved a whole lot with the execution of those recommendations. So, you know, from the client's standpoint, I would say, you know, do the things that that Chris and and other uh, consultants like myself have talked about on this podcast before. Vet your DHA provider. Make sure that you've got somebody who understands your particular application, has experience, has done it before, and has references. Getting a sample report, resume, all those things are great. But also, you need to inspect it internally. Make sure that you've got buy-in within your organization. Understand where you're at in terms of the knowledge process for combustible dust. Do we need to do some training for all of our local EHS professionals so that they have an idea of what combustible dust is before we push out a company-wide edict that says, we must do DHAs at each facility. So Chris, I know you asked me a question that was supposed to have a short answer. If you know me, I never give short answers. I tend to talk a little bit more, but I guess, you know, overall, the more communication you can get on the front end between client and consultant, the better. And moreover, I know that you talked about this with Jason Reason not too long ago on another podcast. Choosing a DHA provider specifically on price is really setting yourself up to fail. And what you really should be doing instead is evaluating what their methodology and their output's going to be and making sure it meshes with your particular uh, you know, company culture and your expectations. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an excellent place to lead off, leave off in this interview on. Um, like I said, these are some high-level discussions that are pretty open-ended at this point. As we have more of them, maybe we can start to narrow in on what, you know, maybe we could produce a checklist on what you need to provide. I think we've actually done this, a checklist on what you need to ask your, your DHA provider before you work with them. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll work towards that. And I, I appreciate you taking your time. One, I appreciate your, just your, your wall time to, to come on and talk. I know you're pretty busy down there. But two, your, your candor and your openness to, to discuss these more challenging questions and not everyone's kind of talking about at this point in time. Um, even to answer some of my more pointed questions too, that might uh, cause some conflicts as well. So it's a big thank you on on my end, Tim. Um, I think we'll probably, hopefully, be able to get you back on talk through some of these areas more specifically in terms of you know what should people specific questions should be asking about hazard area classification or soil protection design. But we'll we'll, we'll tag you in for another podcast episode on that. Um, just want to say thanks again. I appreciate your time today, and and I hope that the audience got a lot out of this discussion. I appreciate it, Chris. I I really do uh, look forward to any and all feedback that we can get from the community, Um, whether whether you're an end user, somebody who's who's in the market for DHA services, you're an insurance provider or insurance broker or a regulator. Um, I I would love to know what is it that is your expectation for what is uh, the scope, the responsibility and the the boundaries of, of a dust hazard analysis, because um, you know that I think that by talking openly about these things, that's going to be the best way for uh, us to improve the entire industry and and make for safer working environments across the board. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And if folks want to contribute, there you can go to dustsafetyscience.com/slash/one/four/two. This episode, um, Tim's contact will be there. Uh, mine is chris at dustsafetyscience.com. You can also jump on the Dust Safety Academy. We have a pretty active forum there where, where people are discussing combustible topics every day. So you can post in there or go to dustsafetyshare.com as well. That's the other way to kind of send us 
um, anonymous incident reporting or just your input on what needs to change, what needs to be added in the, the global dust safety community. Um, all those are great places and maybe we'll, maybe we'll set up some sort of working group in the future to tackle this and the, tackle this challenge um, from these different perspectives. So the more input at this stage from various stakeholders, the better. Um, so I'll, I'll let you go for today, Tim. Thanks again. And I look forward to the next chance to get you back on the podcast. Yes, yourself as well. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Tim. Talk soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Tim Hennix, Director of Engineering Services at Duscon Solutions based at West Palm Beach, Florida. We're talking about what details should be included in a dust hazard analysis. Um, this ended up being really open-ended kind of discussion about this topic. We had intended on sort of going down some, some rabbit holes on some of the specific, um, I don't know, chapters or sections that you might see in a DHA. Um, but we, we ended up really on this higher level. So Tim mentioned this came off a conversation he had with a, um, somebody in the insurance industry on the variance they were seeing in terms of outputs from dust hazard analysis um, should do a hazard area classification, should do exposure protection design document versus, you know, other DHAs where that might be included right in the DHA. And the the insurance broker really talking about how that, you know, changes the the effectiveness impact of the DHA as well. Uh, we talked through some of the specific areas that Tim mentioned, uh, hacks, hazard area classification, exposure protection design, material properties, management systems, hot work, housekeeping, risk ranking. These are the list of the sort of things you might want to ask your DHA providers before starting that relationship with them. What's going to be included? What level of detail is going to be there? What's going to be a recommendation versus part of the analysis? Um, and Tim and I sort of went off on a little bit of a tangent, which um, guy watched the rest of the podcast interview, but on this topic of, you know, who should be the one specifying what these requirements are? How do we deal with just the, the different sort of silos of knowledge that are out there? If you're an industrial hygiene company, you're more likely to focus on that if you're doing a DHA. If you're exposure protection design, you're more likely to focus on that. How do we acknowledge that, that that's going to happen, but then also make sure that we're doing our checks and balances, reaching out to the right people to understand how to fill those gaps on areas that aren't maybe the area of expertise of the, the host company that's doing it. So there's lots of there. Uh, if you have any feedback, again, you can go to dustsafetyscience.com slash 142. I certainly encourage you to reach out to Tim. Uh, his contact information will be there. Or you can find him at dustsafetyprofessionals.com as well. Uh, Duscon is a, is a Dust Safety Professionals member company there. And you can also leave me feedback in any of the channels that we, we use on this topic. We'll get Tim back on to talk about it. We can get somebody else to talk about it as well. And hopefully as we move forward as a global community, we'll be able to... Um, and using that bowling analogy I talked about, you know, bring those bumper lanes closer and closer together, still giving the wiggle room to be able to come up with a specified solution that's going to help your company, but also make sure, you know, it's not too much and too little as we move forward uh, with what those specifications would be. So we're going to leave it at that for now. I want to say thank you again for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Um, I appreciate everything you're doing in interest handling combustible dust, making them safer every day, and I hope you have a safe week out there. 